off. Um, I, I, I'm trying to follow the Lord in this. Oftentimes, when we do a freedom equip, I have a, a flow and a, a couple places in these last two sessions where I can kind of change things in and out. Of course, this being a community where there's a variety of churches who are already engaging kind of their people on these topics in your own way. I'm trying to discern with the Lord how I can best contribute in terms of teaching content in a way that would really supplement and and feed what you're already doing. And so um, as a result, I'm going to take a little bit more time to teach than I would have otherwise, I think, in in this session, um, picking up where we left off on weapons for destroying spiritual strongholds. Um, Slide 10. Thanks for putting that up there. We talked about Christ authority. And one of the things I mentioned in the previous session is is if our concept for prayer, spiritual warfare, etc. can't can't be adopted by by children, I'm not just talking about tiny children, but children in general, then I think think our approach might need to be realigned again to the kingdom. Because these kingdom concepts are, are reserved for the child, right? Um, those who want to enter into the kingdom must first become like that of a child. And Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Those who have nothing, know nothing comes from themselves. You know, and those aren't, the, he's saying, not blessed are those who are filled with principles and tactics and all the right tools. Blessed are those who just know that nothing good comes from themselves. From theirs is the kingdom of heaven, the poor in spirit. And so as we look at these two first weapons, the weapon of truth and the weapon of Christ's authority, I really think that the cultures we build have to be something that we can impart to children. Um, if we can't impart it to children, I, I would propose that they're not part of our culture yet. Because my two-year-old can control an iPad. Because it's a part of our culture. Am I making sense here? And so these, we have to be able to impart these things to kids. If, if we can't impart them to kids, I would propose they're not a part of our internal culture and value system yet. <clears throat> the weapon of truth, the weapon of Jesus Christ's authority. Um, I think that there is tremendous opportunity even for evangelism when we talk about believers recovering the weapon of Christ's authority. I remember being... <clears throat> You know, driving down the road, and uh, when our daughter was a newborn, weeks old, and Jenny was in the passenger seat, and my older sister and her at the time, fiance or boyfriend, you know, um, atheist boyfriend, was in the back seat, and they were sitting on both sides of Nina, who's in her car seat, and we passed by this adult club, if you will that Jenny and I would always pray against every time we passed by it, you know? And as we drove by it, immediately Nina, as a young newborn, starts blood-curdling crying. I mean, immediately. I looked at Jenny. We both had that discernment moment where this is a spiritual issue, you know? And, of course, I have my sister who has some measure of faith, but profession of faith at least, not really living a Christ life, and then my brother, future brother-in-law, who's an atheist in the back seat, and they're sitting there trying to console my daughter, and they're panicking. They don't have any kids yet. They're like, what's going on, you know? And they're wrestling back there, and this went on for moments, and and minutes after minutes, and, and finally there was something welling up in me, this sense of, this is not right. Evil one, you, I will not tolerate you afflicting 
my child right now. And so I remember my brother-in-law in the back, Grant, goes, should, you, should I take her out of her seat? What do I do? I said, hold on, I'm going to pray. And, you know, this man in the back seat would have looked at me like, what, you're going to pray, you know? And I grabbed my wife's hand. I said, in the name of Jesus, any evil spirit that's afflicting my daughter right now, I command you to stop it. Immediately, my daughter stopped crying, and she fell asleep. My brother-in-law in the back like, what just happened? <laughs> in other words, the demonstration of Jesus' authority operating in the life of the believer was a testimony of the kingdom to, to, this, to this man. I remember, uh, we've done this many times in villages in Cambodia as we've had teams go into the nations and had catalyst ministry teams from, from our training school, um, just college-age students coming, going hut to hut, village to village in provinces of Cambodia, and as we're in there coming into a hut, or coming into a, a village and we engage someone on the street, often by because of the mandates of culture, they invite us into their home to speak. It's improper to speak on the road, which is really ideal for evangelists, you know? Uh, what, you're bringing me into your house? Perfect, I've got something to talk about, you know? And, and as we come in there, very poor, impoverished people, there's like a flag or banner hanging from their ceiling. And we know what that is. We know what that is. But we ask anyway, what is this here? And they said, oh, this is protection. It protects us from the evil spirits. And we come into their world um, as gospel messengers, and they're speaking our language, you know. We said, we, friends, we have news for you. This banner here that you've purchased from the witch doctor to protect you from evil spirits does not protect you from evil spirits. It actually welcomes them into your life and into your home. They said, what? I said, there is one man who alone has authority over every spirit of darkness. They said, tell us who this man is. His name is Jesus. And the Father, the God of the universe, has committed all authority, all rule to his care. And we begin to share the gospel through this lens, this window, this language of, of authority. And we have taken down many banners in Cambodian homes. And then with the collaboration of these new believers have burned them in the middle of the street, you know? But I think the demonstration of Christ's authority, even in the West, is an opportunity for evangelism. Were we to recover these truths of authority in various capacities that God has assigned us in, in our life, in our workplaces, in our homes, in our friendships? These are opportunities for people to see the kingdom of heaven. See, it's not enough that we just think about these tools in relationship to our freedom, our experience of freedom. We have to begin to think about them and leverage them to put Jesus on display before others. Amen? Okay, so Christ's authority. Number three, the weapon of repentance. Let's look at slide 11 here, uh, titled The Gift of Repentance. I want to propose to you that the way we think about repentance is perhaps not aligned to the teaching of Scripture. Often we think of repentance as that which we must do as a chore in order to check the box when we know God is really upset with us. I would propose to you that the, a biblical view of repentance involves identifying repentance as a gift from God. It's a gift to be treasured, celebrated, received, not merely a box to be checked or a chore to be crossed off your list so that you could be moved from the naughty list. 
the gift of repentance. I want to propose to you that we need to repent about the way we think about repentance. Let's look at these verses at Acts 5, 29-31. God exalted Jesus at his right hand as leader and savior in order to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Acts eleven eighteen to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. 2 Timothy 2, 25, God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. Romans 2, 4, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Repentance is a gift from God. Uh, and I want to share two things. I, I believe number one, and there, there I'm a slide for this, but if you're taking notes, you can write this down. I would say repentance is actually uh, uh, the doorway to spiritual renewal. Um, if you remember Acts 3.19, when in response to the gospel message, they said, well, what do we do then? You know you preach a good sermon, a mic drop sermon, when the audience are like, well, what do we do now? They're under the conviction of the Spirit. And Peter says this in Acts 3.19, Repent, therefore, and turn from your sins, that your sins might be blotted out, and that times of refreshing might come from the presence of the Lord. Repentance is the doorway to spiritual renewal. Times of refreshing from the presence of the Lord. One One of the reasons for our boredom in our corporate worship services is our deficiency in the area of repentance is I remember one of the most beautiful things that happened in our congregation years ago when God began to infect our body, invade our body with his presence and his power, where one of our pastors on our staff there in Tacoma who had, you know, ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease, confined to a wheelchair, literally had resigned already from our church pastor's staff because everyone knew he was going to die and he was going to leave his wife with five children. He had months to live. The elders gathered around him following in obedience to the Lord on a Sunday night, I think it was Sunday night, a weekend evening gathering. They began to take authority over a spirit of infirmity. Here he was in his journey. He's like, I don't even believe there is such a thing as a spirit of infirmity that can affect a Christian. They said, we don't care. We're going to take authority over this anyway. And they prayed for him as best they knew how, and he went home still ill. The next morning, however, he woke up completely well. He's alive today. The following weekend, he stood up with all of our pastors in front of every service and repented to the congregation for teaching that God's healing touch was not available for today. Our elders that the following weekend went across the street to the Assemblies of God Church. You know, the Pentecostals that we used to make fun of, you know, and... (laughs) We were a Bible church, a proper Bible exegetical teaching church, you know. We used to make fun of the the Pentecostals across the street. And they were welcomed on that platform in their Sunday services, and they repented for teaching false doctrine that God's healing touch was not available for today. You know what that repentance did? It loosed times of refreshing and renewal from the presence of the Lord. It was like sweet incense to the Lord, uh, to which he delights in responding with more of himself. The beauty of repentance, amen? I remember um, 
being in an argument with my wife, one of uh, uh, just a couple that we had, you know, um, in our 15 years of marriage, you know, just, it wasn't really, it was a Christian discussion, you know, and, and we were trying to um, have these moments open air in our home so that our kids kind of kind of see us have tension and then see us resolve tension, you know, and, and, and we were in a, we were in the, um, in the kitchen one afternoon, and I was kind of being a turd. I'm not going to lie. I was, I was being a jerk. And um, I had my own problems, tensions in my heart, open doors to sin. I was operating in pride and arrogance. And, and my wife, you know, I'm pretty intelligent, so I can know how to turn the tables on, my, on an argument with my wife where she can bring up something to me, and all of a sudden, in the course of dialogue, and even using Christian language, I can turn the tables where all of a sudden it becomes her problem, not mine. It's a Christian judo move where you use their body weight, boom, to, to leverage momentum to now it becomes them, you know? And so it's a problem with being like a little bit semi-intelligent is that you know how to turn the tables on your spouse. I, turned, I did a Christian judo move on my, on my wife, and I turned the tables on her, and she's there feeling confused, feeling like maybe he's right, and, and she's feeling stuck, and she already feels down about her own Self and so she, I, I I could see I was you know in the flesh I was taking advantage of the situation. And in that moment, while my wife began to cry, and I'm like, ah, oh, here we go. This is how I'm thinking. Can can I be honest with you, church? Okay, I'm oh here we go again. You know, and she begins to cry. Meanwhile, our four year old daughter comes and walks up. She's watching this take place, and she just saw me turn the tables on my wife, and she saw my wife start crying. And you know what she said in that moment? And keep in mind, I am totally operating in the flesh. I'm energized by some stronghold mindsets in this moment. But I'm doing my thing, you know. And I'm exercising my authority and power as a man and in a home to my own advantage. It's, it's quite demonic when you think about it. Jesus said, the gen- rulers of the Gentiles lord it over you, and they're called benefactors. It shall not be so among you. If anyone desires to be the greatest, he must become the least and the servant of all. So Jesus modeled authority through self-sacrifice. This is what authority in the kingdom looks like. It's not about hooting and hollering, yelling at devils. It's about leveraging your power and your influence and your gifts to elevate someone else. That's authority. And as I'm there, operating in the exact opposite of husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, is that that headship language is couched in the context of self-sacrifice. I'm there operating the exact opposite. My four-year-old daughter comes in with her prophetic anointing. She watches this. You know what she said? She said, Daddy, quit being mean to Mommy. And when that little girl said those words, it was like in... The voice of God broke into my hard-heartedness. And you know what it's like when windows of mercy open up over your mind? And you're like, oh my gosh, I see clearly, I'm being a turd. Should I not say that? I'm being a jerk, you know? Oh, should, should I not say that? I'm being a bad dude, you know? But do you know what I'm talking about? Those windows of mercy where you have a moment of clarity and you think, I am in the wrong. And you have an opportunity in, in, in a moment of sobriety to kind of go, I repent or you dig in further. 
And if you dig in further, in my experience, that window of mercy closes and you are worse off than when you began. So in that moment, in the grace of God, that window of mercy opened up. I saw that I was being, I was in the wrong. My wife looked at me with eyes and her, her eyes said, what are you going to do with this moment? And in the grace of God, there was a window of mercy over my heart. I said, honey, you're right. I am being a jerk and I'm, and I'm sorry. I should not speak to your mama this way. And God's given me authority. I don't, I'm not supposed to use it like this, honey. My wife is crying, you know. Honey, would you forgive me? I'm being a punk. You know, tears in my eyes. I forgive you. We hug. We kiss. Then we have another baby. Now, you know, it's like... <laughs> <laughs> Oh, don't you love reconciliation? <laughs> don't you love the gift of repentance? Amen. Come on. <laughs> hey, you do the math. I got four kids. I've been repenting. <laughs> How many of y'all know marriage doesn't work without the gift of repentance? Marriage doesn't work without the gift of repentance. And we have opportunity only in Christian marriage to model something where we exercise our authority through self-sacrifice. And the husband, who is a stronger vessel, even biologically speaking, lives in a way where he prioritizes a weaker vessel, even just biologically speaking, and he interrupts the curse and the consequence of the garden where because of sin, your desire, woman, is going to be for your husband. He's going to rule over you. He's going to, in a hierarchical manner, rule over you. Leverage his authority for his own personal gain. Only in Christian marriage is the curse reversed. Where now husbands are called to be dethroned from their hierarchical place and live in authority for the benefit of the woman, the bride. That's the gospel. So Christian marriage, in Christian marriage, we have the greatest opportunity to present an apologetic to a watching world that non-Christian marriage has no opportunity to present. And so do you see then, oh man, I'm getting on a soapbox here, off-topic soapbox, where even in the church, the hierarchical gender hierarchy in the church is in direct opposition to the gospel truth, and it prevents us from modeling something to a watching world, the reverse of the curse. The gift of repentance. A couple months later, we were in another Christian discussion in my kitchen. <laughs> this time my wife was in the wrong. And so I'm digging in, you know, I'm going to get her on this one. You know, the things you think, you know. And my daughter runs in. She's watching this take place. My wife starts crying. I'm like, oh, here we go. <laughs> I'm trying to be reasonable. She starts crying. My daughter looks at us. She goes, Daddy, 
quit being mean to mommy. And I'm thinking in my mind, that's not right. That worked last time, but it's not, it's not, you know, like my wife's the one who's in the wrong in this moment, but I can't in that moment in humility, I can't in integrity check my daughter and say, no, your mom is the one who's wrong. In other words, I'm not going to exercise my authority in a way that dominates my daughter and mandates repentance from my wife, you know? So I'm there, Lord, Lord, do something. I looked at my wife as she's crying in her self-pity and in her own stronghold struggle. You know what she does? She She goes, Nina, it's not your daddy this time, it's me. Internally, I'm like... Booyah, you know? <laughs> Externally, I was like, mm, praise God, yes. You know? <laughs> My wife began to say, oh, babe, I'm sorry. I'm taking advantage. I'm... It's my own self-hatred that's getting in the way. And I'm hearing you through the lens of my hatred for myself. And as a result, I'm just shutting down. I'm sorry, honey. We hugged and we kissed. <laughs> Baby number four, you know. The gift of repentance. Man, I, I just think if we repented of the way we think about repentance, we would enter into the bliss of freedom, the doorway of spiritual renewal. And also, we would see it as the doorway to transformation. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, um, it's not on the screen. Paul's talking about the contrast between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, the Old Covenant glory, the New Covenant glory. Then he says, um, when one turns to the Lord, the veils are removed. He says, they, when they read the Old Testament, the Jews, they can't see anything. But when one repents, turns to the Lord, the veils are removed. Repentance removes spiritual veils over our seeing, our perceptivity of God. And then he says, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. And, but what is that, what is that freedom for? It's not just to dance and sing and get, get a more hot worship service. No, it's actually in context of reading the Old Testament scriptures and seeing the glory of Jesus. We have freedom to gaze at God. And that gaze, that beholding of God in the scriptures... He says, we all with unveiled face behold as in a mirror the glory of the Lord and we are transformed by that glory into the same image from one degree of glory to the next. Paul says, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. In other words, Paul's saying, if you turn to the Lord, you unlock endless, boundless possibilities of spiritual transformation as you open the word and gaze at God. Repentance is the doorway to spiritual transformation as we behold God in the written word. Repentance. Um, Slide 12. So to to repent, it involves three things. Of course, stop sinning, confess your sin. Number two, turning from your sin. Number three, doing the opposite. I want to go to slide 13, Ephesians 4, 8, 28. We'll come back to those three steps. But here's Paul. He's saying, let the thief who steals steal no longer. Instead, let him labor with his hands, doing an honest work, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. 
I want, I want you to understand this. The picture of a thief who's walking in the direction of stealing. He's exercising his authority and his power to take from others for personal gain. It's the, it's the curse of Genesis 3. He shall rule over you. Am I making sense here? So the dysfunction of, of the curse is that we now use our authority in humanity to rule over others, to take from others. So the thief is walking in his thievery. Repentance starts when there's a light of glory that comes over his mind and he understands what he's doing is wrong. Conviction. But it only starts there. People get messed up when they equate repentance with the first step, which is conviction. This is wrong. And he stops what he's doing. But I'm afraid many Christians re-enter into bondage because they haven't fulfilled the full process of repentance. In other words, they've just stopped the negative activity. Well, that's not enough. Everyone knows even the addict who leaves one addiction picks up another. So it is with sin. It's not enough just to stop negative activity. In other words, the thief stops the negative activity. He turns in the opposite direction so much that he gets an honest job. Say amen, someone. He gets a J-O-B and he starts working with his own hands. Now he's being a productive member of society. But repentance doesn't even stop there. Now he's earning an honest wage so much that he's sharing with others. See, when repentance is received, the thief becomes a generous giver. I would propose that we need a more robust view of repentance in our own personal lives and in our churches. Where we are not just merely settling with the ending of naughty behavior. But we're calling people into the beauty of righteousness. That's, that's where all the power is. That's where our hearts are made to operate in that kind of satisfaction. Amen. The beauty of repentance. And so, of course, as you know, many of you who've gone through different freedom class, freedom manual, freedom this, freedom that. Uh, slide 14, we use the 4R model prayer, which is just four steps in Korea because this doesn't translate. I just say the four-step model for praying through a spiritual stronghold begins with repentance. That, that is the, the action, at least, of confessing one's sin, even out loud. And, and I'm a fan of confessing specific sin. I believe in specific confession because I believe in specific cleansing. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I'm afraid that a lot of people live under cleansed because they're under confessed. Generic confession does not bring about specific freedom. And in, when we entertain a, a heart of pride or spiritual elitism or arrogance, we will not confess specifically. We will be generic in our confession. Say amen if you know what I'm talking about. In our confession, even one to another, if pride, if pride is on the throne of our heart, we will not be specific in our confession. We will do like my kids do to one another after they do something naughty. I'm sorry. 
like, like, Bubba, you just took the guitar and hit your sister over the head with the guitar. <laughs> like, what are you sorry for, son? <laughs> and so a, a general confession does not bring about a specific freedom. When we live in pride and in arrogance, we will not confess specifically. So think about your own life and your, in your in most intimate relationships. Are you a specific confessor or are you a general confessor? The measure of freedom that you operate in in that relationship will be determined by the specificity of your confession. Because when I turn to my wife and I just say, I'm sorry for, for being proud, that's one thing. If I say, honey, I'm sorry that my pride has made you feel diminished and small and made you feel like you don't measure up, that you can't do anything right. For any way, I come into the house and because it's a mess, I, I make you feel like you're less than. Forgive me, Lord. Forgive me, honey, for even the way I look at you and I communicate that with my eyes because there's a spirit in, in, in me that's conveying. Forgive me, Lord. Forgive me, honey. Specific confession in the context of my relationship with my wife releases specific healing and restoration. Pride will not let you go there. Is that helpful? So you have the repentance part. Number two, we receive God's forgiveness and grace. This step is so important because I've done lots of altar calls. I've done lots of ministry at the altar. I've seen lots of Christians cry lots of tears over shame and bondages in their life. But one of the things that happens is if we don't take the next step and by faith receiving and claiming the forgiveness that is ours in Christ, we live under worldly sorrow rather than godly sorrow. Paul says... Godly sorrow leads to repentance and to life, whereas worldly sorrow leads to death. And so this step of receiving, God, just even out loud, Lord, I receive your cleansing and your forgiveness. God, I receive. Like that step is so vital because it reassures us that what is done is done. Likewise, in interpersonal relationships, this step of receiving forgiveness is very vital. And so when I confess to my wife and my wife has opportunity to say, I forgive you. And I say, oh, thank you. I, I, I now receive something from her. There's an exchange that takes place that brings about reconciliation. And so some of us in our interpersonal relationships need to get better at saying the words, I forgive you. Debt's canceled, Amen. We need to be about these spiritual transactions that restore friendship. That's, how, that's what it looks like with the Lord. Number three, the prayer of rebuke is really an authoritative prayer. Three authoritative prayer we see in the New Testament, the prayer of rebuke, which is a prayer of authority that um, limits or cuts off activity. You also have the prayer of command that Jesus modeled. And then finally, you have the prayer of pronouncement. Right now, we're just speaking about the prayer of rebuke. And this is where recognizing that in our sin or in our rebellion, we have given 
opportunity for the enemy to have greater influence in our life, to establish opportunity, a foothold, a stronghold, a topos in our life, we are saying in Christ's authority, no, your influence that's come in through my sin or through a root of a spiritual stronghold in my life, I rebuke your influence and I command you out. I command you out of my marriage, I command you out of my family. The prayer of rebuke is a vital prayer in that it puts our authority into action. The prayer of rebuke. Finally, the third, fourth step is re- the step of replacement. This is where we begin to recognize that it's not enough to simply confess what we've done wrong. We have to put, we have to turn ourselves into a direction of the opposite spirit. And that begins with declaration, but it doesn't stop there. Um, don't fall prey to the trap in freedom communities where we only see the, the fourth step of replacement as like a spoken declaration. What if, what if you pray through a spiritual stronghold and then for the next three months, you're listening for the voice of the Spirit, you're reading the Word, and you're saying, God, build in me a repentant heart to, re- to replace the, the patterns that I've established in my life with God truth, God love, obedience to your Word, new patterns of righteousness. We need to think, I want to think transactionally, but I also want to think in terms of longevity, of spiritual transformation. What if replacement is a four-month step? What if it begins in a prayer moment, but that prayer moment launches a discipleship initiative in your life? And and now all of a sudden you're like, oh yeah, that first quarter of 2018 was about me walking out of pride and walking into the beauty of humility. You had a transactional moment in a freedom prayer time, but then you began to build the replacement step of righteousness over three or four months. Is that helpful? So you have the four R's, repent, receive, rebuke, replace. We're going to leave that up there. Actually, let's go back to slide 12. To repent, you stop sinning and confess your sin. Number two, you turn from your sin, and number three, you do the opposite. Let's go back now to slide 14. I want to um, highlight just a simple area of a spiritual stronghold that I think perhaps we can all identify with. In, in the territory I've already talked, I've already breached the topic of the area of pride. And so I want to drive into that area a little bit more and say, Lord, bring insight into our hearts where this area of pride might be operating. And Lord, we want freedom. We want repentance. We want renewal in this area. Thank you, Lord. I think pride has heavily to do with our relationship to God's truth. I want to paint a picture for us in a moment, and then I'm going to unpack it, and we'll have a time of prayer. Um, there were two people groups that modeled two different relationships to the God's word in the New Testament. And we'll highlight these two, right? Now, number one, you have the Pharisees, and then number two, you have the Bereans. The Pharisees endlessly followed Jesus from city to city, or town to town, village to village, listening to his sermons, 
with the foremost intent of finding a problem with his teaching, to criticize him, to debate with him, and to challenge him. In other words, they had a foremost posture of criticism. You have the Bereans who received apostolic ministry, and the Bible says they were more noble than the Thessalonians, for they first received the word with gladness. And then they went and opened the scriptures and searched the scriptures daily to find out if what was being taught to them was true and consistent with the word. So you have two pictures of two different relationships to the word. You have the Pharisees who followed closely Jesus' teaching ministry with a foremost posture of criticism and challenge and debate. And then you have the Bereans who said, Lord, I want anything you'd have for me. But God, I'm also going to check the scriptures and make sure this dude's not wacky. And so I say that because I think one of the indications of pride that is, can be easily seen in, in the heart of a churchgoer is our relationship to truth. Um, and, 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 and it might look like this. What does it look like? Um, do we have a posture of dismissing others' voices in our life? The Pharisees were out to criticism, for criticism and debate. But let's back up. Do we dismiss key voices of authority in our lives that God might be wanting to speak to us through? Husbands, do we dismiss the voice of God in and through our wife because in our minds we understand, oh, well, she's got these three strongholds that she's dealing with. And so I don't really need to listen to this criticism or this correction or this rebuke. In other words, we're dismissing her input because we know that she's flawed herself. Wives, do we do the same with husbands? So single people, do we do something similar with other leaders in our lives and friends in our lives, family members in our lives? Do we dismiss others because they're, they've not arrived? What, one of the things pride does is it, it puts us in a posture where there's only a few people that we can receive difficult truth from. And that list gets smaller and smaller and smaller the more entrenched in pride we get. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But it's funny that some of the most advanced Christians have the smallest list about who can really speak to them hard truth. So what's your relationship to God's truth in different values? Do you dismiss others because they've not yet arrived? Is your list of people that you can receive hard truth from growing or is it getting smaller? If you have a small list, I would propose to you that there is pride that needs to be repented of. And so do you, number one, do you dismiss others, the voice of God in others? Number two, let's take it a step further. Is there more of a Pharisee in you in that, not just dismissal, but is there a voice of internal criticism in your mind? When someone is speaking or teaching or exhorting or perhaps even prophesying, is there an impulse 
of criticism towards that person, judgment towards that person, comparison towards that person. Oh, well, she thinks she can say this, but I really know this about her. These these internal impulses reveal something about our heart. What's our relationship to criticism of others? The higher the impulse we have of criticism, particularly when people are speaking truth, it indicates the presence of pride. The Pharisees were so close to Jesus, the wellspring of life, yet they had no revelation because their relationship to truth was they were primarily postured with the spirit of criticism as opposed to the Bereans who were postured to receive. So what's your relationship to criticism of others? So we have the dismissal of others, then we have the criticism of others. As I'm speaking, just let the Lord search your own heart. God, where is this in me? Do spiritual evaluation in your own life. Spiritual inventory in your own life. God, search me. Know me. God, if there's any of this in me, show it to me. And lead me in the everlasting way. Come on, this is the heart of humility. This is where all the blessing of the kingdom lies. Lord, we're open book. Give us the gift of repentance where we need it. Do I dismiss others because they're not perfect? Do I criticize others? I think these two things, when we repent of these things, we actually recover not only area of humility in our own hearts, but as a church, we recover something beautiful in community that is actually appealing to the next generation. When we can receive truth from a four-year-old daughter in a kitchen, or we can receive truth and, 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 and we, can, we, can, we can confess it, exercise our authority in a way that doesn't dominate over others. I think one of the things we see this dismissal of others in culture so intensely socially today that, I mean, we can't even have political discourse, as many of you know, today, because the culture that has been created from platforms, from news platforms to social media platforms is that we've labeled those who, with whom we disagree with such fierce labels that it creates antagonistic relationships, adversarial encounters, whereby we are immediately at war with one another. So we have liberals, snowflakes, and we have rednecks, conservatives, and you know all the other labels that we have, right? Homophobes. And there's so many labels and cult, but labels, remember, we, when we define one another, holy smokes, do you see this? In culture, we define one another by our deficiencies and our flaws. We create these adversarial encounters that, whereby today in culture, we can't even have civil discourse, So do you dismiss others with whom you know you disagree on one point? Do you have a posture of rejecting truth from sources 
simply because you know you disagree with them on a point. If so, that's the heart of the Pharisee. Amen. It's the heart of the Pharisee. Well, I know I disagree with them here, so I can't listen to them in any of these areas. I remember when my wife posted something about parenting when we were first, you know, disciplining our kids. You know how many, you know how many comments we got on that? Uninvited <laughs> comments that really called into question my wife's ethics. It was just from other well, Christians. They weren't unbelievers who were chiming in. There are people in the body of Christ who are populating her Facebook status with their boundless wisdom, with their criticism. But do we dismiss people with whom, simply because we disagree? These are three areas, or two areas really, that I've touched on. Not time to go into any further right now. We have number one, the the dismissal of others. Number two, the criticism of others. Symptoms, two symptoms of pride. I had other areas here certainly I could speak to. These are, these are the only two I have really felt prompted to highlight right now. Number three, I'll take that back. In our own life, do we, do we have what's in the culture around us, which is a cover-up culture? Do we refuse to acknowledge our own error? Do we refuse to acknowledge our own error? I would propose to you, okay, I'm going to give you opportunity to be offended with me in a moment here. <laughs> that what we're seeing even in the highest ranking offices of our nation is this refusal to acknowledge any error. And it's not an exercise of authority that is reflective of the character and nature of Jesus. It's an exercise of authority, at least in this capacity, a refusal to acknowledge error, that protects oneself from any opportunity for correction, for reproof, for training in righteousness... When we close ourselves to truth, we close ourselves to spiritual transformation. We close ourselves to development. We close ourselves to maturity. We close ourselves to freedom. In your own life, is there an internal refusal to acknowledge personal error? Weigh that against Jesus' prescription for restitution. When you have made a wrong, Perhaps replacement, the fourth step of replacement, actually means that you need to follow Jesus' word and make the wrong that you made right again by doing something very practical. Let's stand together. We're going to have a time of prayer here. Father, we stand before you here Lord, um, first saying thank you, Lord, for the gift of repentance. Thank you, Lord, for the grace of humility, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord.
If you're here and, and you feel like the Lord had highlighted for you ways in your heart where you dismiss truth, you dismiss others, God's truth in them and through them, and you know that you have in different places closed off your heart to God's truth through others because of their flaws, because of their imperfection, because of your relational history, and the the Lord's putting his finger, divine finger on that area, and he's saying, this is pride, and I want it out. I want it. I want it cleansed. I want it. I want it done. And I'm calling you into the beauty of humility. If that's you and you're like, man, I I do need to repent some areas where I've dismissed others, God's truth, God's voice in others, just put your hand up if that's an area of repentance for you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Just keep your hand up, Lord. We, We confess, Lord. We confess, Lord, that first our repent. Lord, we confess, Lord, that we have sinned. Lord, we have stood in pride. We have dug in our heels. We have closed ourselves to truth through others, Lord. God, we have allowed our flesh to be influenced by pride in such a way, God, where we have dismissed truth, your truth from others, Lord. Forgive us, God, for ways we have said, well, I know who they are. They're not perfect. This is our history. This is what they said last. And as a result, we've closed our hearts to your voice in and through this, these, these, these people. Lord, forgive us, God, forgive us. I want you out loud in your own words, just confess in your own way with specificity the ways you've done that and the ways you've dismissed God's truth in others. Out loud. We'll just have 20 seconds of confession right now. You can do that out loud now. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, God, for cleansing. Thank you, Lord. Your husband here and you're like I'm, I've dismissed my, the voice of my wife just put your hand up as if that's an area of repentance for you today Father forgive us as husbands Lord we have sinned God we have dismissed your voice in the ones you've given us Lord to, to walk with us and to love us Lord forgive us Lord forgive us God for ways we've shut down their voice anyway God our pride has made them feel diminished made them feel like they're less than, made them feel like they don't deserve it, made them feel like they're not gifted enough, not diligent enough, make them feel deficient and weak. Lord, forgive us. Forgive our pride and our dismissal of the women you've put in our lives. Lord, forgive me. Man, would you say this out loud? God, forgive me. Cleanse me. I repent of pride. you need to say you're sorry to your wife right now, just say, babe, I'm sorry. We're going to talk later. I want you to know right now, I'm sorry. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, 
your wife here, we are going to focus on marriage just for this one moment. If you're a wife here and you're like, I've dismissed the voice of my husband because of X, Y, Z, and I need to repent of that right now. Just put your hand up, Lord. Oh, God, forgive us. Forgive us, Lord. Cleanse us, ladies, in your own words. Just, Lord, forgive me. Cleanse me. I repent today. Just go ahead and tell your husband, I'm sorry I've done this. We'll talk. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. The second area of repentance is the area of criticism. If you have carried a heart of criticism in relationship to God's truth. And, and so when people begin to speak, even God's truth, talking about kingdom friendships, relationships here, and there's immediately a, a, an impulse towards criticism that rises. And you know that thing has bound you and, and you need to repent of that criticism and pride. Just put your hand up if that's you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. God, we confess to you today, Lord, our heart attitude of criticism, Lord. For in ways, Lord, it's fueled by unforgiveness and bitterness. You know, God, when we pray, deal with us and show us and lead us in those areas. But now, for now, Lord, we say we repent, Lord, of a critical attitude of ways we've allowed our minds to judge people, the ways we've used the word of God in our mind to cut people down instead of to elevate them and to esteem them highly in our own minds. Lord, for ways we have used the word of God like a sword that cuts people down, Lord, instead of a sword that sets people free in our mind. God, forgive us, Lord. Forgive us. In fact, everyone here, even if you've not raised your hand on this topic, can we pray this prayer together? Lord, forgive us. For ways we've used the truth in our own minds, conversations, and attitudes to cut people down instead of to set them free. Forgive us, Lord. Cleanse us, Lord. Let's open our hands to the Lord. God, this afternoon we receive your cleansing, your forgiveness, your mercy, and your grace. Lord, we are cleansed in this moment. Hallelujah. We are cleansed. Just tell the Lord, I receive your cleansing, Lord. Let's pray this prayer of rebuke together out loud. In the name of Jesus, we take authority over criticism, diminishment, and pride. We say no more. We command evil influences out of our minds, out of our hearts, out of our conversation, out of our friendships, out of our churches. Gone now. Lord, I declare in this room right now, eyes, spiritual eyes open right now to see the beauty of humility, to see a path forward into righteousness that is awesome and joyful and full of hope.
Lord, to see a new day dawning, Lord, in Jesus' name. I declare, Lord, that there's some in this room who've not been able to shake the critical attitude. And in Jesus' name, your eyes be open today to see a clear and beautiful path forward into humility like never before. That this would be an hour of transformation in your life. That this would be mark a shift in your life where you would step into a season of, of walking into the beauty of humility. I bless you today in the name of Jesus. May your eyes be open to see the beauty of righteousness in the path of Jesus. I bless you. I bless you. I bless you in Jesus' name. Father, we declare right now this prayer of declaration, God, that we are those who are embracing the heart of Jesus. We are those who are embracing hearts of humility. Lord, we want to turn the other cheek, go the extra mile, give our cloak and tunic too. We declare that the poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom. Oh God, we come before you and we say, Lord, we want to be your humble ones, sons and daughters. We're after your heart, Lord. We're after your heart, Lord. We're after your heart, God. Come on, let's raise our hands in this room. God, in this room, I pray, God, that you would teach us your ways of how to use spiritual authority in a way that raises others up and sets people free and doesn't tear them down and dominate over them. Lord, let this be a revolutionary community. Let this be a community, Lord, where the upside-down kingdom is manifest, Lord, where the greatest are the ones who served, where people know us by our love. Let this be an upside-down community, God, of people who are chasing after the heart of Jesus. Let this be a community filled with your love, your truth, and your power. Oh, God, let this be a place and a people that are ruled by you. We love you, Lord. We love you, Lord. We love you, Lord. Love you, Jesus. We love you, Jesus. I feel like the Lord is just one more moment here highlighting reconciliation. I might talk more about this later, but I want to say right now is that some people in this room, you don't need to go to someone else in the room and say, I've been critical against you. That'll just make them feel horrible. But some of you, in righteousness, you might need to tell, you might need to go someone and say, I'm sorry that I've created distance between us and I don't want that distance to, to be here. It's my fault and I want it gone. So sometimes even in our restitution, we need training where we're not putting things on people that make them feel horrible. But we're taking responsibility in a way that lifts up others and protects friendship. Does that make sense? No, we don't want to go to someone and say, I'm sorry I've been critical to you in my mind and judged you like that's not going to help that friendship but we can say I'm, I've created distance and it's my own pride forgive me that's what you need to do on break I bless you in Jesus name